Goldman Sachs lights a fuse under copper. Welcome to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Kickle correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. And with us is Ryan King, Vice President of Corporate Development at Caliber Mining. Ryan, welcome to Kiko. Thanks very much for having me. Nice to see everybody. Caliber is a fairly new company. What are you working on in Nicaragua, Ryan? Well, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It is a fairly new company. We are a, new, a gold producer as of last year, at the beginning of last year. Just before that, we acquired two producing assets from B2 Gold, the Le Mans uh, operation, the Libertad operation. And so we are uh, one of the largest, if not the largest gold producers in the country with a lot of exploration happening in the country. We're going to talk more about uh, what it's like uh, setting up a junior in this environment. We're also going to talk about M&A and we're going to get uh, Ryan's opinions. But first, we turn to gold. We always ask about this, Niels, but uh, what's the inflation news this week and what is the impact on precious metals? Um, inflation's going up. In fact, actually, like it feels like... Um, gold investors are taking the inflation threat seriously. Uh, we saw a, a major move in gold this week. So prices broke above uh, 1765. And uh, now they're ending the week, I think around 1780 and change, give or take. Um, up almost 2% on the week. So it's best week since uh, mid-December. Um, lots lots to sort of be be celebrating here. But yeah, it all comes down to inflation. And, and we see that, like we see um, the inflation threat, just, you know, companies coming out and saying that their costs are going up. And when their costs go up, they pass those on to consumers. And it's not just in the gold market. You can see the inflation threat in the U.S. dollar and uh, more importantly, in bond yields. Um, they just kind of collapsed. They went from, you know, what a high of, of uh, one point above 1.7 and now they're just above 1.5%. So that really helped, the, that really ignited this, this fire under gold. And now um, uh, to, to, to talk about the, well, you can, you can uh, introduce the gold survey, but really interesting results this week. Um, a lot of people are expecting, uh, it's only a matter of time before we get to uh, 1800 an ounce. Uh, let's hold the gold survey. We got it. We're gonna hold that tension, but Paul, uh, can you come in please? Yeah, um, I was just going to add that it's not just gold. Uh, copper's back up near ten-year highs at uh, you know four dollars twenty a pound. Aluminum's adding a ten or eleven-year high at uh, just over a dollar a pound. Zinc's back up at nearly one dollar thirty a pound. Um, pretty much the only um, base metal that hasn't really that's had a bad week is nickel, which has fallen back under seven dollars thirty a pound. For everybody else, it's been uh, a, a really good week. Niels. And just not in the base metals. I mean, lumber, I was talking to one analyst, it's $800 above its five-year average. Um, something like the the the, uh, the uh, Home Builders Association in the U.S. came out and said, like, uh, because of lumber prices, uh, construction is costing, like, on average, twenty more than $20,000 more. Um, it's just like this, all of these, all of these imports, Input prices are are just are are going crazy right now, and you know like the, the idea that this is transitory is really interesting. I mean, even if lumber prices do correct, they're just they're up so high that the correction is you know for for inflation to to not be the threat that it is, you would have to see a massive massive correction that I don't really want to think about. I mean, there's you know a lot of people are going to lose their shirts if we do see that kind of correction, but yeah, it's just. It feels like this inflation is going to be a lot stickier than than just you know transient. Ryan, well, to Niels's point, I think it's it's hitting everyone's pocketbook right now. I mean, I have a neighbor who said six months ago he bought a sheet of plywood for fifteen dollars, and just yesterday or a week ago he bought it for eighty dollars. So it's significantly trickling down, and everyone's feeling it. Yeah. I, did, did he did he hold on to that other plywood? Like, can he sell it in the market? Is that yeah? Let's <laughs> make a profit. Now. He can make some money. It's <laughs> one time of a sheet of plywood. It's a good excuse to defer your home renovations. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, the summer the summer porch season is not going to be nice though. That's yeah. 
working yeah. in our industry, I'm getting chills thinking about the fact that there might be a lumber spot market. Um, uh, there was another <laughs> bullish silver report uh, speaking about uh, bullish indicators in the metals. But uh, Niels, there was another uh, bullish silver report uh, talking about the support uh, the white metal will get from industrial uses. Yeah. So, I mean, it all comes down to this uh, green energy uh, revolution or evolution. Uh, CIBC is uh, the, the next bank to become uh, bullish. Well, they've actually always been bullish on silver, um, but they say, yeah, you know, pay attention to silver. They expect it to outperform gold this year. And it's all because of uh, solar power demand. Um, it, really interesting. They, they noted, and this is something that we've talked about on, on in the roundtable before, um, they've actually said that that thrifting is probably at its limit. Like you can't really, maybe a little bit more, but you you can't really uh, thrift the silver in these solar panels anymore. And you can't really substitute. Silver is the best metal for conducting electricity, and that's why it's it's always going to be in these in these solar panels. And the fact is that you know construction of solar panels is going to outweigh any any more thrifting that we see in the markets. One piece of news out of Chile this week to add on to the thrifting element of what uh, Niels was saying about solar. Um, This week, uh, there's a a solar plant called Cerro Dominador in the Antofagasta region, which is where all the big copper companies are, the big copper mines are. They put on line 110 megawatts of solar power that's based on heliostats, which is basically they've uh, lined 10,600 mirrors around this 250 meter tall tower and that will focus all their sun's rays onto the top of the tower where it's going to superheat um, salts, turn liquid salts. And that's what's going to power the turbine to generate power. So not really using silver at all in a very large solar uh, generation capacity plant. Niels, what does the weekly gold survey say? Um, it was fairly easy this week. Every single analyst we talked to was bullish on gold. Um, 100% of analysts say that they expect to see higher gold prices. And it's actually, it's not really that surprising. A lot of people have sort of been waiting for this breakout ever since uh, we tested that that support below 1700, formed that, that technical double bottom, um, you know, really, really created some, some uh, optimism in the market that, you know, like there's, there's a solid floor under gold. Um, on the retail side, they're not, you know, they're, they're not as optimistic and they're not 100%, but they still are very uh, uh, bullish on gold. 65% of uh, retail investors uh, expect to see higher prices next week. And, you know, so the first target that people are watching is 1785, but really, we, they just, they really want to see um, $1,800 an ounce. The weekly gold survey can be found on Kickle's homepage, and we publish that every Friday. Copper got a big vote of confidence this week. Goldman Sachs analysts called copper the new oil and predicts its price is heading to six eighty per pound twenty by twenty twenty five. Uh, copper was up about three percent for the week, and as Paul mentioned earlier, currently trading at about four ten a pound. In February, copper hit a multi year high, closing in on the four fifty eight per pound level, and that was from twenty eleven. Goldman pointed to the usual drivers, energy transition being one of them. There has been several stimuluses already. You're looking at the car rebates that came into Europe to kind of lift that industry during COVID-19, what has been happening out of China. And then, of course, there is that large infrastructure bill that is working its way or trying to work its way through the U.S. administration and Congress. Paul, Robert Friedland has every reason to be hyped about copper. He is advancing his massive Tier 1 Kamoa in the DRC, which is set to open officially this year. What did Friedland say as his opening talk at the CRU? Yes, well, the CRU is the World Copper Conference, and that's one of the main world copper conferences in the world. Um, when it's held presentially, it's in Santiago, Chile, um, and it is the copper conference in the, the Americas. Friedland never takes any prisoners. Uh, he's very bullish on copper, and he's always um, he's, he's always there to sort of break down the walls of what is uh, traditionally a very sort of staid and uh, you know potentially boring industry. So. What he was talking about is that access to supplies of copper and other materials is becoming a national security issue, and that is prompting the growing balkanization of the world as different countries 
seek to secure their supply chains. And balkanization refers to you know the First World War period, uh, just or just prior to the First World War period in the early 20th century, the fragmentation um, of the international order. And he says you know this is happening in the global supply chain as these different blocks, China, European Union, the US, are scrambling to secure their own supply chains, putting up walls to everybody else. And he said that's going to be very, uh, very bullish and inflationary for prices. Uh, If you ever get a chance, uh, if it does come up, it is always worth uh, watching Robert Friedland uh, speak uh, just on the impact of uh, just the style and the salesmanship and the marketing and also just being a big thinker. Uh, It's always a lot of fun uh, that he presents at uh, shows. Uh, Let's switch to junior news. But first, our sponsor. Revival Gold is a growth-focused gold exploration and development company, which is advancing its BearTrack Arnett Gold project in Idaho. BearTrack Arnett is the largest past-producing gold mine in the state, hosting a multi-million-ounce resource of gold. The project benefits from existing infrastructure, including roads, power line, and an existing ADR processing facility. Preliminary plans are for restart of the open-pit heat leach operations, which will produce 72,000 ounces of gold per year. The oil and sustaining cost of gold will be 1057 per ounce. The leach operation is to be followed by a second phase mill operation and a much larger scale of production. CEO is Hugh Agro, who has several years of executive experience with stints at Kinross and Placer Dome. He was also a past roundtable participant. And the company has a giveaway. The first 25 people to email info at revival-gold.com, info at revival-gold.com with the map in the title and their mailing address will receive a free Idaho mining property map. To learn more, visit Revival Gold, and we thank the team at Revival for its support. Paul, you took the temperature of several nickel explorers in Canada. Yes. um, Nickel exploration in Canada is well underway because um, nickel is one of the metals where it's forecast to be extreme supply deficits going forward as batteries and EVs go forward. So everybody's looking for nickel. There's not a lot of it around. There is nickel in Canada. Um, and so several companies are are looking to to exploit that. But one of the key things that, um, one of the interesting things there is a lot of the nickel exploration companies are pitching their, their, their making their pitch for carbon neutral nickel net zero nickel um, as being, you know, that's going to, is what's going to attract investment. That's is going to, what is, what is going to attract customers for them. And this is based on the fact that um, the, the nickel is in ultramafic rocks and ultramafic rocks contain serpentine minerals, such as brucite minerals, which in, naturally absorb carbon from the atmosphere. And so in addition to having electric trucks and hydropower from the, you know, the Canadian grid, the, 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 just the fact they have these uh, brucite rocks will naturally absorb carbon and they think enable them to be carbon neutral, carbon zero, um, which is something that's perhaps very, very necessary for them because most of these projects are looking at, you know, billion dollar development costs. So having that extra benefit will be very necessary for these projects to uh, actually get into production at some point in the future. Canada, of course, is uh, well served uh, by hydropower. So uh, that will allow uh, companies uh, that are developing uh, if they're uh, so lucky that uh, they can be on the grid. uh, So that can allow them to uh, do uh, development and then uh, tout uh, their ESG. We did have on uh, McKinsey's uh, Ken Hoffman. um, I can't recall if it was a podcast ago or two podcasts ago, uh, but uh, talking about uh, nickel getting to that trigger price uh, where it actually means that uh, these projects can move forward and then can actually become mines. And as you noted at the stop at the uh, start of the podcast there, Paul, that uh, nickel was uh, one of the uh, metals that uh, really didn't enjoy this uh, lift uh, from uh, the wider range of uh, nickel and or I should say the wider range of commodities that uh, got a boost uh, this week. Um, Yamana, uh, Yamana Gold is going to uh, BC's Golden Triangle, Paul. Yes, that's right. Yamana Gold bought a 6.4% stake in Ascot Resources, which is about to start building uh, the premier gold project in the Golden Triangle. Um, Ascot is looking at peak annual production of 180,000 ounces a year of gold equivalent from a restart of operations there. Um, I think one of the things that makes this particularly interesting is because, again, it's a producer, an established producer buying into assets 
in the golden triangle. Uh, maybe it's because, uh, you know, skiing and COVID and whatever, and they want to get out into the mountains. But it follows, uh, you know, Newcrest Mining buying a stake in the Redcrest Mine in 2019, Newmont investing in GT Gold in March. Um, last year, we saw Artemis buy the Blackwater um, project, which they're um, looking to put into production, and, and Seabridge Gold buying the Snowfield. So, the Golden Triangle, British Columbia, is getting a huge amount of interest and is being, you know, the prime destination, if you like, for M&A activity and, and strategic investments. I don't know if you mentioned, but of course, there's also the operating Predium mine uh, that is up in the Golden Triangle as well. Uh, the Premier mine, a very historic mine, uh, I believe about 100 years old, uh, very close uh, to uh, the... Uh, the city of Stewart. Uh, Stewart is uh, just uh, at uh, the very end of the uh, panhandle in Alaska. And then it's right beside Hyder there. Um, and I believe that uh, Ascot uh, acquired Rob, Mc Rob McLeod's uh, Red Mountain, which is uh, just mm -hmm. above the city there. Uh, tin has been uh, one of the top performing metals this year, and I'm seeing more tin headlines. And uh, one of them wants uh, Tinka that said it had a tin discovery, Paul. That's right. Um, you know, this really stuck out because we don't often get the opportunity to talk about tin, which is a shame because uh, the metal is at a, a 10 year high at around $27,800 per ton. Um, anyway, Tinker Resources made a new tin discovery adjacent to high grade zinc zone at its Iowilka South area of its Iowilka property in Peru. Um, it's got cassiterite tin mineralization and it intersected that in eight drill holes with highlights including 12 meters, grading 3.8. 0.5% tin, um, and that was above an intercept of 4.1 meters, grading 17.7% tin. So tin is looking like it could be a, a, a really good addition to this uh, growing zinc project there. And um, Tinker aims to get a mineral resource update and an updated PEA released later this year. Uh, I did note in uh, the Tinker News release that uh, they did uh, talk about uh, TIN's tie-in uh, with um, the EV um, uh, EV battery materials and uh, high technology, but uh, really an ongoing theme uh, in the mining space. We're going to switch to mining. Uh, Barrett Gold had a production report ahead of its Q1. Thank you very much to Niels Christensen, uh, editor at uh, Kitco, for uh, covering the story for us. Metal production was lower due to sequencing, but the mining giant still expects to meet his 2021 guidance with production and a sales pickup in the second half of the year. Uh, Paul, you said that uh, Pure Gold is facing a dilution challenge. Yes, um, Pure Gold Mining has been out shaking the can and it secured about $32 million of additional funding, of new funding to shore up its, its working capital um, because it's dealing with uh, an underperformance following, you know, as part of the startup of its Pure Gold, formerly the Madsen Mine in the Red Lake District of Ontario, Canada. Um, the company is, uh, it, it's the newest gold miner in Canada. They started production uh, in December last year, I believe, um, but it's been having difficulty getting up to the, the expected head grades due to unplanned dilution. Um, the company reported uh, dilution, it, it, it had a head grade of 2.8 grams per ton in the first quarter, compared to expectations of five to six grams per ton and a nine gram per ton feasibility study reserve grade. Uh, the company ended last year with uh, just over $19 million Canadian in, in cash. And so um, it's just completed a, an upsized $15 million bought deal financing and amended its loan agreement with Sprott to uh, secure another $20 million, um, hopefully to give it the, the, the working capital to, to get through these teething issues, these startup issues. Lots of environment and social governance news as miner chased down their green credentials. Anglo-American said it is sourced 100% renewable energy for all its operations in Brazil, Chile, and Peru. The company runs various base metal mines in Latin America, nickel, copper, and iron ore. The company is targeting a 30% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Rusal, the world's largest aluminum producer outside China, will spend $5 billion to $10 billion on new technology at its smelters. The project will reduce Rusal's emissions of hazardous substances, including hydrogen fluoride, by 10 times. The new technology will reduce its electricity consumption by 11 to 20%, Rusal added, and that's according to reporting by Reuters. Um, I would like to bring in our guest in uh, just a minute, uh, but Paul, uh, there were some elections in Latin America. Uh, what countries are coming up and uh, what's the potential impact on miners? 
Yes, um, I, the main one um, was the the second round, the the runoff presidential election in Ecuador, which was won by Guillermo Lasso, um, who's a 65 year old financial entrepreneur and politician. Um, and it was a surprise, but um, I think, but uh, it was generally welcomed by the mining sector as Lasso favors a, a policy of economic freedom, commercial openness, and active participation of the private sector in the exploitation of natural resources. Uh, among his proposals are for the mining sector are to appoint a Minister of Environment and Water to really focus on environmental conservation. Um, but um, his uh, water and, and the environment is gonna continue to be an issue. There was also a presidential election in Peru this past weekend, it was the first round. Some 18 candidates were taking part. And there was a surprise winner uh, where left-wing rural school teacher Pedro Castillo um, came in first, um, setting up a left versus right battle for the June runoff, uh, where he'll be competing against Keiko Fujimori. Keiko Fujimori is the daughter of former president Alberto Fujimori. She's also run for the presidency twice before, um, obviously being defeated twice. Um, she's a controversial figure herself, as uh, she's formerly been uh, previously under house arrest for her um, alleged participation in Odebrecht's corruption scandal to do with uh, campaign donations. Um, it's an interesting situation brewing in proof for this presidential election. Castillo clearly mobilized the rural agrarian population including many people who have not benefited from the country's economic growth over the past 20 years, with his motto of no more poor people in a rich country. Castillo advocates drafting a new constitution in which the right to health and education become constitutional rights and using the resources of the country, including gold, silver, natural gas, to pay for it. So um, that's going to be a very interesting election. Philippines seem to be going the other way, Paul. Uh, Philippine President Rodrigo Duarte has lifted the moratorium on new mineral agreements imposed nine years ago. The country's economy is staggering under COVID-19. There is also nickel on Philippines and an eager Chinese market. Since 2018, the excise tax on minerals has doubled to 4%. Duarte's new executive order allows new mining deals and reviews of existing contracts for possible renegotiation. It also directs the environment minister to formulate terms and conditions and to strictly implement rules on mining safety and environmental policies, that according to reporting by Reuters. Uh, Ryan, we're delighted to have you on. Uh, we just stated at the start that it is a fairly new company, and uh, we've certainly talked about uh, ESG uh, and uh, kind of meeting those goals. Um, I think you had the advantage of being a fairly new company. You could kind of set a foundation there. Maybe you could, uh, we want to talk more broadly about what's happening at Caliber, but uh, maybe we should just keep with that theme first and then talk about uh, assembling, a, assembling a new company around ESG. Yeah, thanks. No, that's absolutely critical. And it's a focus for a lot of investors right now. Um, but really, when we look at ESG as Caliber, it's, it's really a, an integral part of business. Right. So when we formed the company and acquired these assets in 2019, we actually brought all of our managers, supervisors and leaders together in a room and we outlined our framework, our vision and our core values. You know, it's things like for us thinking and acting like owners to responsibly engage and responsibly mine. So that's critical from an onset for that, how we make decisions and go about our business on a day to day thinking and acting like owners. And two, the core values are so critical. I think when you start from the top and you work your way through the organization, those will flush through. Core values like safety, social, environmental responsibility, integrity, teamwork, and accountability, that, that helps set the stage for making smart decisions. And so those are some of the critical items that we outlined to start with when we acquired these assets. And 2020 was a significant year for us, right? It was a significant year for many of us in the business and across the globe with COVID-19. So you're thinking about health and safety. You know, we actually self-imposed a shutdown for a few months at our operations to ensure that the health and safety was at the maximum it could be. And so we shut down the operations for a few weeks, almost two months, actually. We came out with preventative communication. We came out with protocols for the safety of our communities, our host communities, as well as our employees and contractors. So we take it very seriously. 
And I think that um, one of the items that I think would be good for companies as a whole is joining the World Gold Council. They've outlined 17 plus responsible mining principles and to help guide and shape companies. And we're, we've joined last year and we're working hard towards complying and outperforming on those principles. When you're uh, putting together a project uh, in a country like Nicaragua, where do you kind of get those operational pieces for uh, making sure that you have a good stakeholder relations? Where do you get to that? And where are kind of the best models for doing something like that? This is a great question. I mean, fortunately, our chief executive officer, Darren Hall, has worked in many countries around the world. So he was 30 years at Newmont. So he had a very good understanding and experienced framework of what has worked in many different countries. He's worked in Nevada. He's worked in Peru. He's worked in Indonesia and Australia. So he's been able to take that experience and apply it to Nicaragua. Now, prior to Caliber acquiring these assets, we were an exploration company in country. And we had a very good community relations team that went out regularly and held meetings. We have, uh, there's a good mining legislation in place for all of your exploration activities, for all of your mining activities. So we, we're fortunate that way. And, and, and I would say that of our 3,000 employees, uh, majority of them are local within the country and have very good expertise with these assets. And there's a very good national and international framework to adhere to. So uh, we're fortunate that way to be able to acquire these really good people and again, these assets were B2 gold assets where there was a very good foundation of environmental stewardship and social license to operate. You have your investor relations hat. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, how do you build a junior right now to attract investors? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, here we've seen the price of gold in the last couple of years raise, rise 15%, I think in 2019, rise 20% last year. And of course, it's, it's volatile. We've seen this over the years. It's up and it's down. But I think fundamentally, right from, from the foundation, it's about the people, right? People that, you know, hopefully have a track record in the business that can be trusted because that's important for investors to see people's track record, see investors or management or CEO's track record in the business. Also, it's, you know, the, the team putting money into their own deals. I think that's highly critical is, uh, I would say, shareholder alignment at all levels of participation, not just call it, quote unquote, seed financing for a penny. But you want to see your CEO, your senior management, your board of directors investing alongside of the, of the shareholders. So there's true alignment. And then at the end of the day, really, if it's an exploration company, right, there's higher risk, obviously. But you, you would trust the team and the people that says, hey, they're putting their money into this. They believe there's good exploration potential. Or if it's a development stage project, equally the same. I'm, I'm going to be investing in this company because of the people, because they're putting their dollars and their reputation on the line as well. So I, I think those are really critical in this day and age, because as the price of gold goes up, we're going to see more and more companies get put together that may not have all the critical elements you want to look for as an investor. What's the marketing side right now? Of course, that we haven't been at conferences uh, with COVID. So I guess everybody's gone online. So, I mean, what's your day look like or what are you doing that's kind of new in terms of just regarding uh, marketing and then also just uh, keeping uh, tabs in terms of communication at Caliber? Uh, many fronts, many, many fronts. I mean, we, we regularly, what I find works really well is consistent news flow. And so fortunately for us, we have a lot of news flow. So those are regular touch points for either current shareholders or potential new investors. So the more news a company has, and I'm not going to say filler news, but regular news that you can, like, for example, Caliber has 15 drill rigs operating. So anytime that we have some news or some drill results, we're going to try and batch those and put those out along with our production updates that regularly happen quarter over quarter as well. So first and foremost, it's news flow. Secondly, we're very active on social media. So Twitter, LinkedIn uh, are avenues that a younger generation are really starting to pay attention to and follow and make investment decisions, believe it or not, on social media. And so in learning that over the last 12 to 24 months, we've actually deployed a pretty significant digital awareness program as well. You know, yes, the conferences are not happening person to person in, in various cities around the world. 
but there's still online Zoom, uh, you know, virtual meetings that are happening that I would say are effective, but not as effective as getting getting in the same room, shaking hands, talking to people, and not just making it about business, but making it a social aspect so that people can understand and get a flavor for characteristics and personalities of management of these uh, said companies. So, so many different approaches, lots of lots of communication digitally, of course, virtually, but a regular news flow, I think, is really important to get in front of investors. Uh, we started uh, the year with, uh, you know, some sizable deals in the gold space uh, in mergers and acquisitions. I think recently that's kind of flipped more to uh, the EV side. But, um, you know, I would like uh, your perspective right now. How do we look in terms of mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I mean, we live in the small junior uh, gold producer and a growing uh, gold producer that has some organic growth. So when you look across that landscape, there's not a lot of us, you know, that sort of 150 to 250,000 ounce producer. But what I do believe and what I consistently hear is that particularly institutional investors would like to see companies come together, would like to see those at market mergers um, because, you know, you've got just so much capital to go around and they want to put it towards a, a, a sizable position. Niels. Um, do you think there's room for, uh, you know, sort of at market mergers right now? Like I'm just, I'm sort of wondering, I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, bullish sentiment when it comes to the gold price, especially long-term. I mean, you can't print this much money without, you know, unintended consequences or intended consequences. And I'm just, and I'm sort of wondering, I mean, you know, what's, what's the, the valuation out there for, for projects and, and the potential for, uh, companies, you know, like yourself to, to grow through a and uh, M a. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And, and I'll, and I'll kind of divert to the world as we know it is changing. We're going to more electronic trading. And I mean, it, we, we've seen this historically, but the high frequency trading, the algorithms, the passive uh, investments in ETFs, et cetera. And as a company grows, in a rising gold market environment, you know, some of those passive investments will go to the bigger vehicles, the bigger companies. And, you know, that is one of the biggest things, Niels, that is holding back MA, our management teams that say, well, we're in a rising gold market environment. We're going to do incredibly well. We're going to add cash. We're undervalued. But really, at the end of the day, you have to look at uh, these, these companies as a financial product. And if you can put financial products together cooperatively, with no social issues, you can pre create superior products like our group did with New Market Gold and Kirkland Lake. It became a very success story by those by that merger. So I think you have to take a look back and look at it from an investor perspective. Paul, and I think uh, continuing on that theme, uh, this past week there was the World Gold Forum, and the BMO did a, a keynote presentation there. Two of their analysts, Colin Hamilton and Jackie Prybokowski. And one of the things that uh, I think it was Colin who said this was that um, consolidation in the gold sector is lagging other mining sectors. And, and I think I'm correct in saying he said that eight years ago, there was about uh, 16 medium sized gold companies. There's now that's now doubled. And so he said that's perhaps one of the reasons why some of the generous investors are still sitting on the sideline. There's just too many options. So consolidation is necessary to get back towards that sort of 16 sort of company uh, sort of level um, as being you know something that would be very healthy for the gold sector. Niels. Well, I guess, and and I don't disagree that consolidation is is needed, but I'm just I'm sort of wondering. I mean you know, with this viewpoint, you know, have we learned our lessons from, you know, 2011, where, you know, we just ended up where the sector just ended up chasing projects, you know, uh, blowing out their balance sheets, and, and all of this stuff and, and, you know, growing debt, and just investor capital destruction. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of wondering, I mean, you know, like, yeah, Ryan, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, have we have we learned our lesson as we need to to consolidate? Yeah. 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 No, you bring up a really good point. Now, honestly, I think that's part of the reservation of why we haven't seen more active M&A. Um, you know, everyone is, is of the belief that the market is rising. The gold price is rising. 
So they're, they're tentative, uh, reluctant to take on debt. And that to me kind of, uh, I, I believe a lot of balance sheets are much better positioned than they have been in a long, long time. And so uh, I, I do believe that there's going to be opportunities to bring companies together to create a, a more diverse product. And so, you know, risk reward potential, you know, everyone does in our business, we do believe that we'll likely be, we'll likely be in a higher gold market environment in time because it just, the debasement's a currency, as you said, Niels, that it's a hedge against inflation, but it comes down to companies and teams executing, but also what they can add through finding new. I think that's so important when we talk about M&A because we're always depleting our future revenue. And that's part of the reason we do M&A, right? We, we, we do M&A because maybe our exploration opportunities in front of us aren't great. So we need to acquire a project to sustain our operations uh, or our business as a whole. So, yeah, we'll see how things flow out here. And, and, and I think it's going to be something that's going to get active. Maybe not so mergers of equals and producers, but acquisitions of development or exploration stage assets. Paul. I think you've also always got to bear in mind that company managements respond to a greater or lesser extent to what investors in the market want. Um, we're coming out, we've been through a period of capital discipline at a time when everybody knows it's the best time to buy assets because prices are cheap. But capital discipline meant that companies didn't. As investors and the market wants growth, to answer your question, Niels, the the the, the the pressure to start doing transactions and paying ever-increasing um, premiums will happen. Um, just this past week, Anglo-American, it's slightly different, but it illustrates the point. This past week, Anglo-American announced that it's going to spin out its thermal cold operations in South Africa into a new company called Thungela. Um, and the company basically said, you know, its investors had, had very different opinions about what it should do with its coal thermal coal operations. Should it keep them? Should it divest them? Should it be in the business? Should it not? So the decision the company took at the end of the day was, well, we're going to spin it out. We're going to give you all the shares. And then you as individual investors can decide whether you want to sell them to mm -hmm. get out of thermal coal or keep them to stay in thermal coal. Um, at the end of the day, companies respond to what the investors want. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Paul for uh, reminding me of the piece that I meant to add to my ESG segment a couple of minutes ago. Thank you very much. Um, I want to now get to our number of the week. Brian, we always start with a guest. What's your number? <laughs> oh, this was interesting for me. So my son, who's, uh, who's eight years old, um, that's not my number. Um, <laughs> my son, who's eight, loves dinosaurs. And probably his favorite is the T-Rex, as you can all imagine, right? The T-Rex. Um, so 2.5 billion is my number. 2.5 billion T-Rex dinosaurs roamed the earth at one point in time during the Cretaceous age. 2.5 billion in total. Just recently reported on by Reuters. So there you go. Look it up. 2.5 billion T-Rex. <laughs> and uh, your uh, Nicaragua was not very far from uh, the impact crater that uh, marked <laughs> that uh, marked the end of uh, the dinosaurs as well to uh, kind of pull it all back together, Ryan. We could have a sport yeah. contest. Who can pronounce the name of the, the crater? <laughs> have a little prize for it. <laughs> <laughs> Good contest, not me. <laughs> Uh, Paul, what's, uh, what's your number of the week? I'm going to stay on theme with ESG and solar. And so I've got several numbers in this little bit here. Um, B2 Gold basically formally commissioned its solar plant and its Vicola mine in, in Mali. Vicola's due to produce between 530 and 560,000 ounces a year. But the solar plant is going to have a 30 megawatt capacity. And the company estimates it will save 13.1 uh, million litres of heavy fuel oil a year and reduce CO2 emissions by an estimated 39,000 tonnes a year. So a good few numbers there. And uh, that's uh, going to uh, help uh, silver producers there, Niels. What's your number of the week? <clears throat> my number is, um, you know, I'm a finance guy. So my number is 84 billion. Um, and that is how much uh, the Fed's balance sheets increased this week, uh, according to Bloomberg. 84 billion. It's now at another record high of uh, 7.79 trillion dollars. Um, like I just, I can't. And I, 
again, this this all feeds into the gold price. I don't think you can have a lower gold price when you have this much this this high of a of a balance sheet. Like this is this is a lot of money that that is sloshing around the uh, the financial the financial markets. Keeping with the EV theme, my number is 90%. Lithium miner R. Cobre said it has experienced a 90% gain on lithium prices over the past six months. Once again, a 90% gain on lithium prices over the past six months. Just showing you how much money and then we, the wheel has really turned for that entire space. That's it for us. Ryan, you said that you have uh, how many drills was it again operating uh, down at your project? 15. Yeah, lots 15. of activity across all of our asset base. So uh, what's the news flow over the next 12 months? That should have been my number of the week, 15. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's a very no, exciting you know, we're, we're keeping the T-Rex. We, we <laughs> love that number. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, what's, what's your news flow? Yeah, exciting time at Caliber. We've got uh, this year we're going to produce between 170 and 180,000 ounces of gold. So regularly delivering on quarter over quarter production, but a lot of exploration results as we look to organically grow the business. So stay tuned for exploration. Niels. Just really quickly, are you paying for, like, is your exploration being paid for through the cash flow generated by your production? Absolutely excellent uh, question. You know, Caliber has no debt, very clean balance sheet, 58 million in cash, and we're adding cash while we continue to reinvest in the business. So we've got a significant investment this year, not have any need to go back to the market because, as you said, yes, through operating cash flow, we're reinvesting in exploration and mine development. So an ex exciting company now that we're really focused on these assets. Feel free to reach out to us. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael McCray. McCray is with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. And Paul Harris is at P Harris 1313. Ryan, how would you like people to get a hold of you? Uh, anytime at our website, calibermining.com, or you can reach me directly by email. No problem at all. rking at calibermining.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe to iTunes. And always, if you have a suggestion about the show and what you want to hear, let us know. Ryan, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much, everybody. Appreciate the time. Great discussion. As mentioned, we are always interested in listenership of feedback. Please let us know how we're doing. We are going to reprise our last video, and this is David Lynn's interview with Kai Hoffman. Kai Hoffman, CEO of Soar Financial Group, is back to talk about the best and hottest investment opportunities within the resource sector. Kai, welcome back. You are an expert on junior mining financing activity. In fact, you track this in what's called the Orin Inc. Index. Tell us about the latest findings of this index. What does it show? Where are the trends headed? David, thanks for having me back on. It's always Great to be back on Kick. Thanks for introducing the Orning Index. Um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting the last few months and the last few weeks in particular as well, as we've seen uh, trends change a little bit. And then uh, the buzzword has been sector rotation a little bit. We've also seen that in mining as we've seen more copper financings or base metal financings and also more uranium financings as well that have taken the limelight a bit from the gold and precious metal space for 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 the time being last week that we've seen a bit of a trend change again as well uh like our index was primarily dominated by gold financings and uh, while we're not back at the 100 level for the index, and you can you can go reference it at uh, oraninc.com, but uh, we're, we're at healthy levels, and we're definitely way ways away from the bottom in our sector, and uh, it's not as grim as uh, you might expect out there. Generally speaking, how do uh, financing activities this year compare to that of last year? I know last year we had a record uh, number of deals in terms of volume and uh, money raised. How does it look this year in comparison? Uh, my gut feeling, like I have to run the compound numbers, but my gut feeling says we're a bit slower. I looked into BC numbers and they were about 20% lower for this year. Also, mm -hmm. it has to do with seasonality to a degree. We haven't seen a lot of flow through financings, for example, yet. And we're also still waiting for results for some of the companies. So you can't raise money unless you know what you're going to do with it. And waiting for results is a big part of that as, as well. So the, the industry has a bit has been slower. A lot of the financings and money that has been raised has been more at the, the higher end of the market, meaning more the developers are early stage producers. What are flow through financings? 
they're more only Canadian investors, unfortunately, can invest in flow through shares unless it's charity flow through. And we can go down a deep, deep rabbit hole. But it pretty much means that you as the investor can write off the expiration expenses of the companies because the companies don't generate revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, investors are allowed to write off those against their own taxes. And that's sort of what oh, that flow through is and charity flow through credits are. And all junior mining companies within Canada qualify? Uh, they have to have the projects in Canada. So it doesn't okay. matter if you're headquartered in Canada and have a project in Guyana, you're not flow-through eligible. Okay, let's go back to the, the, the fact that you brought up that financings have been coming back to the gold sector away from well, as, impa- as compared to other metals. Why is that? Is it, is it due to the gold price? I wonder if there's a, a relationship between the number of financings and the level of the gold price. There definitely is a correlation. It's not as strong as you might think, but we definitely see that. Copper has been running to $4.30 a pound, so that took a lot of interest. Obviously, we've seen more copper gold or just pure copper companies finance as there was more interest at the time. Same thing with uranium. We've seen quite a few uranium financings, and now gold is at the forefront again as well. We're not really breaking out, but copper has been taking a break. We're barely trading above $4 a pound, so investors are looking at other opportunities again right now. Do you think this uh, interest back into gold is a short-term temporary spike or is it sort of the beginning of a, of a trend right now? Because I'm looking at the gold price, it's still down on the year and it's been flat for the last month. So I, 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 don't, I would suspect the uh, interest back into gold financing isn't due to the price of the metal itself. No, I think it's what overall is happening. And uh, on, on Thursday or Friday, we've seen PPI numbers with inflation seem to be finally kicking in. Uh, yeah. We're expecting CPI numbers tomorrow. So there is an overall interest in gold as, itself. Same with Bitcoin as well. I think we ran over $60,000. And I don't want to talk Bitcoin, but I think it goes a similar trend. Yes, we are down today in gold. I think we're trading at $17, $20 right now as we're talking. Um, we're down about $20, which is not great, Like, which is not a massive. I mean, sorry. Uh, I think it's more just waiting to see what's coming out. It's a uh, the long-term trend is very, very much intact in gold. And that's mm-hmm. why I think those gold companies are able to raise that kind of money they're raising right now. Uh, you know, I've been talking to analysts and economists, and one of the common themes I've heard in regards to metals prices, not just for gold, but other base metals as well, is that uh, the bullish case for the resource sector right now, or resource metals in, in general, is that there's going to be more demand than supply can catch up to. And I find that interesting because when I ask these experts to drill a little deeper on this topic, uh, they conclude that there isn't enough supply right now because there isn't enough investment interest. And so if you don't have enough investment funding into the sector, they're not going to be drilling as much, which I find like kind of like a chicken and egg problem, right? I mean, you, you, there isn't enough supply because there isn't enough investment. Well, you're not going to have investment if there isn't, you know, isn't activity to begin with. The price isn't going to go up. So um, anyway, do you, do you see that as a, as a major impediment to uh, supply growth, the lack of investment uh, into the sector right now? Yeah, there's a massive lag, especially in the base metal space. As as you know, like decent copper mines of size, they're billion dollar capex projects, and exploring for those, like drilling out of porphyry is expensive. And as as we're all aware, until like early 2016, and that's when it only started to happen, we haven't seen any inflows into the junior exploration companies. And those are like the venture capital startup companies, the Silicon Valley's, the Silicon Valley juniors, right? That are paving the way. Uh, we're seeing Microsoft buy Nuance Communications today for $20 billion. Well, they started pretty much like an explorer. You got to start somewhere, you got to develop a project, bring it to a certain stage, but that all costs money. And money is, might not be patient enough in that regard because it takes time. And uh, we're, we are unfortunately living in a very, very fast paced world. I think COVID accelerated that and we expect results tomorrow. And uh, sometimes we don't have t- three, four months to wait for drill results, which is unfortunate. You know, I, I do wonder why financings this year have been lower relative to last year. I mean, I understand the price of gold is lower, but it's still not low by any absolute measures. It's, I mean, 1730 right now. I'm looking at the latest price. It's not... You know, by any by any means, it's not a low price for gold. We've seen much lower in in, in prior years, haven't we, Kai? Oh yeah, we have, and uh, like that's what I mean. Like with the Ornig index now at sixty five this week, this is still healthy in my opinion because we benchmarked it to January twenty eleven when the market was the highest it's ever been pretty much, right? Uh, There is interest. Like, unfortunately, we're still competing with an S&P 500 that goes from record high to record high. I think the S&P had marked five record highs within the last six trading days, which is ridiculous. Trying to get that retail investor to switch over into gold or gold stocks, it's going to take a bit of a crash or at least a scare to get more interest again. Okay. 
All right. Well, let's talk about investments in the resource sector. We, you and I, have discussed uh, how to pick the proper investment for you. But let's talk about the reverse. Let's talk about specific qualities or characteristics of gold mining or any mining company that you would actively avoid. Quite a few, actually. I'm not sure how much time we have here on this format. But, <laughs> Take uh, your time, Kai. <laughs> no, it's, like, it, it's with any sector as well. Like, if, of course, it starts with people, right? So it's easy to do. Everybody's got a LinkedIn account these days. Go, go look at people on LinkedIn and see okay. if there are gaps in their CVs. Have they worked on something before, right? Are they uh, maybe, and, and we talk mining and I'm primarily focused on junior mining, but what have they done before they started their own mining company? Did they run an esports company, a cannabis company, or biotech company? Like, where's the expertise in the company, and do you trust that expertise? I think that's the first, first one already. And then, of course, the earlier stage companies, you can look at cap structure. And, of course, like, how much did they pay for a project? Was it an arm's length transaction? Where did the shares go? Was it a numbered company that got the shares? That's all. Those are all red flags, for example. And just on management, before we continue, do you usually prefer management with a background in geology or a background in finance? Oh, that's a tricky question because you can have a great boardroom geologist, but those are far and few between. So to, generally speaking, more finance background while backed up by a very strong geologist in the boardroom who can talk shop. Mm -hmm. What about financials? Let's say you, you, know, you take a look at their report, their annual report. Uh, would you notice any red flags just by looking at their financial statements? Marketing spending in terms of uh, in, in comparison to exploration spending. I think that that's a big indicator. Are they spending more for marketing than the money that goes into the ground? That's a red flag. Why are they doing that? And is the marketing effective? Are they getting actually the share price higher? Are they able to dilute less? That That's something I would take a look at as well. There, There's justified marketable exp marketing expenses, but uh, they're far, again, far and few between. Mm -hmm. And generally, when it comes to valuations, how would you determine if if a stock, a gold mining or a silver mining junior company is trading at fair value, would you would you would you do the valuations yourself? Would you consult uh, a third party? I mean, how would you, how would you make that decision? So it, it really depends, like what your what your interest is. It depends on the risk level as well. The small, the, the more junior you go, the higher risk you can get, and the multiples are more interesting, right? Yeah. I, I don't look at the Barrick Golds or so. There are experts out there. Those are not for me. Like that's where where I draw the line, right? But I'm interested in small juniors, companies that produce seventy thousand ounces a year. They often trade at a discount because maybe their mine is in a jurisdiction that's not tier one, like Canada or Nevada, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. That's where, you, and and you can do that on your own due diligence. And I don't mean like don't cut out the investment advisor before you make a decision, but those are the easier ones. And then of course you can look at track record of management and then see why they do have a discount. Is there a lot of debt on the balance sheet? How much are they paying for their debt? And again, we can go down deep, deep rabbit holes on uh, certain metrics there as well. But it comes down to can they actually deliver on what they've been promising over the past few months? Yeah. Generally, when you're looking at ex exploration companies, what, what is the preferred outcome for you? Are you looking for a buyout or are you looking for them to uh, develop their own projects some, 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 uh, you know, somewhere down the line? comes back down to management. If you have an engineer on board, like even as a chairman or a board member that has done that before, I don't mind the exit being becoming a producer. But uh, you'll need to see most of in 99% of the cases, you'll need to see new management team come in before that actually happens. So for me, the preferred way, obviously, is an exit, ideally at a premium, and depends on who the acquirer is, not just in shares, but uh, cash would be nice. Okay. And that would actually, like maybe to touch follow up on that, that would be fantastic for the sector because that money would circulate then back into other stocks as well. Mm -hmm. um I, I like to just back away and talk about the mining sector as a whole and some of the major challenges facing the entire industry, not just for the juniors, but also seniors. I'm, I'm lumping them all together. Um, I know that resource depletion is something, a, a long-term issue that many investors are concerned with. Here's my question, Kai, is that when resources are nearing the end of their life cycle, is it not more expensive to drill the last bits and pieces of ore in the ground? And if so, wouldn't it naturally be, you know, wouldn't you assume that a company towards the end of its life would have lower and lower margins because the cost would be higher? Is that a fair assumption to make? Uh, probably yes. And I'm, I'm just like, since you lumped the big and the small juniors together, it, it's really interesting because there, there is a difference because on okay. the junior side, we're more forgiving for shorter time uh, mine life because companies are more flexible. They're more dynamic. They're more the speedboats, right? They can more they can quickly buy a project, integrate it. While for a barrack or so, it needs to be of massive scale. 
So let, let's talk Beric, for example. Like, how, how important is a twenty-year-old, a twenty-year mine life, for example, or reserve life, in comparison to ten years or eight years? Like, and and that's really interesting. A discussion we had here in the office. Like, what do the generalist investors want to see? The reason why Newmont, for example, has been outperforming Beric is because they listen to the generalist investors. They raised their dividends, I think three and a half percent right now, and they outperformed Beric, and they actually went up against the trend the last few weeks. And that's interesting to see. So that comes down to a discussion. Like there might have has to be a, a overthinking of strategy and general alignment with the markets. And uh, and for the junior side, do you, do you do you see uh, you know no risks of uh, of margin deterioration sometime down the line? Uh, yeah, yes, of course. If you don't fill that up, you you will have to drill it. You'll drill yourself stupid. To, to a degree, right? And uh, it, it does come at a cost. And at some point, you got to say, okay, this this horse is dead. We can't kick it anymore, right? There's nothing coming out of it. So, and that's when usually companies start looking at other assets, or they at least have a couple of projects in their expiration pipeline that they might be able to bring on board or online within a few short months after uh, the, the main asset depletes. Okay. Uh, Kai, let's close the conversation off by talking about metals prices now. I know, I know you don't see gold heading much lower. You said to me uh, a couple months ago that we'll need to see unicorns in the street before we see $1,200 gold again. So uh, give us a brief outlook on sort of your, your gold uh, forecast. And also, how does it compare to your outlook on some of the other metals? Which metals are you most bullish on right now? So, so gold, I think I stand by my thesis, we'll still need to see unicorns before we crash 40% lower, right? And I, I still can't see that happening. I'm quite excited that we bounced off the 1680 level a couple times now. That seems to be holding that trend line. Um, I'm generally optimistic for gold. Like if you look at the macro environment and statements that are being made, inflation is now kicking in. Uh, bond yields are fairly stable right now, but there's still no real yield possible. So we, we it all bodes well for gold and silver to a degree as well. Uh, we hear central bank buying, buying out of India is going very, very well. I think you guys posted an article this morning about it as well. So there's lots happening in the, in the, on the gold space to be optimistic about. And if you want to get take, take a step further, there's a, the U.S. just mobilized uh, war, uh, the, their Navy to the Ukraine. Uh, Russia is rabbling their sables. So there's a lot of factors that go into gold. Copper, I'm very bullish, of course, because we are all following the U.S., the Green Wave Initiative, infrastructure spending. So that's that's key, of course. That's going to be dominating the headlines. And same with uh, with nickel as well. All the major auto, uh, car manufacturers are talking about going electric. You will need nickel for your batteries. That that all bodes well. I think we're all trending in the right direction. I'm not sure if we're just at the beginning of a massive super cycle, but uh, the, the trend is your friend. Yeah. I do have one question on uranium, uh, since we're talking about other metals. Now, I've learned through talking to some uranium producers that there's currently no production in North America right now because it's not, the price is too low for mining to be economical. Is that something you've heard as well, Kai? And if so, I wonder why the price of uranium hasn't moved up because the demand, from what I understand, hasn't, hasn't gone down. It's just the supply has become non-existent. That's a narrative I'm still scratching my head about. Like, yes, everybody's building, like apparently China's building 30 new reactors and where are they sourcing the material from? Like after Fukushima, a lot of plants shut down. So there's a little oversupply still sitting at some of the nuclear power plants. But uh, I, I don't get it. Like Denison bought two and a half million pounds of uh, uranium recently uh, as part of their process of going into production. I still need to figure out why they bought uranium while they're becoming a producer. Right. That's something I'm scratching my head about. They say that's part of backing up their financing package. They have some physical assets in inventory that they can bank against, which is a really interesting statement because they bought it at market. Right. So the, the, the uranium narrative is an interesting one because I don't 100 percent know where the supply is coming from. But uh, at least Kamiko uh, is restarting Cigar Lake, which was officially shut down due to COVID-19 reasons. Yeah. So we'll see what kind of impact that is going to have later this year. Uh, I, I forgot which uh, quarter the, comp- uh, the project is going to be at full production again. I think it's later this year, Q3 or Q4. And uh, curious to see what that impact is going to be on the uranium price. And finally, uh, the SF Online Session 8 is happening this week, Kai. Exciting stuff. I was honored to be on uh, your show on the, uh, on the uh, program last time in Session 7, I believe. I was, uh, you invited me as a keynote, so uh, thank you for that. And uh, you have a great lineup of uh, keynote speakers this time. Lynn Alden is there, uh, Tavi Costa, both, of, both fantastic macro um, economists I've had the privilege of speaking to. So it should be interesting. What are, what's, uh, what's on the agenda this time? So as you said, like it's tough to top you having having you on on SF Online Session Seven there, but we managed to get Lynn Alden and as you said, Tavi Costa as well, fantastic macroeconomists. Your 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 guests or your 
your viewers know that. But we also have nine different mining companies. I'm really excited about the prospect of those companies. And I'm going a bit on a limp here, but I'm quite excited about what, what they can achieve in the next 12 months in terms of share price appreciation. Some of the companies had a fantastic news the last couple of days as well. So check them out, like Aurelia's Resources, Signature Resources, just, just to name a few. I'm not going to name all nine, but I'm really excited. It's a free to attend event, sorefinancial.com slash events. It'd be great to see you all online. Yeah, and you probably get asked this all the time, but generally speaking, when you've been talking to people in the last couple of sessions, what is the sentiment like? Um, are people sort of optimistic about where the uh, financings are headed, or are they, you know, more um, pessimistic given how great it was last year, and it's a high <laughs> bar to pass? I'd say it's neutral still, but what impresses me the most, investors are more educated because of all the great online content that is out there now. So I think it seems like they have a bit more better grasp of where things are headed and where they're at in the cycle right now. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Kai, for coming on today. And uh, good luck with session eight. We'll speak again soon. David, thanks so much. Thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lin.